Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for today's episode with the one and only Dr. Chris Ryan. Chris Ryan, you may know from being the author of the highly acclaimed book, Sex at Dawn, as well as the complimentary TED Talk, which talked about the question of are humans sexual omnivores. He's one of my you know, favorite thinkers as it relates to sort of just questioning traditional paradigms and the status quo. And he has a new book out called Civilized to Death, which I just really, really enjoyed in regards to thinking about civil, how civilization has evolved, um, what lessons we can learn from our uh, hunter-gatherer uh, forefathers and foremothers in regards to, you know, structuring more egalita- egalitarian societies in regards to, you know, how we live um, in a way that is optimal for our own sort of health and happiness, and how those um, lessons can be applied to living in modern day society. So we had an incredibly rich conversation. Um, I think you'll get a lot of value out of it. I absolutely loved it and uh, liked it so much that I actually am going to go back up and do part two um, on his other book, Sex at Dawn, in the near future. Um, so please uh, check it out and let me know your thoughts. You can tag me at Michael Trainer. If you enjoy the episode, please go ahead and leave a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us uh, and the show grow. And with that, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by two of my favorite companies, uh, Foria Wellness. Foria is my go-to CBD, super high in quality, super high integrity, um, broad spectrum CBD, sun-grown in the United States of America, 100% uh, organic MCT oil base, no solvents, no heavy metals, no pesticides, and uh, also no THC. So just great for anxiety, overall supplement I keep in my day-to-day wellness routine. You can check them out, foriawellness.com, put in peak for 20% off your order. They also, which I'll mention in Chris Ryan's uh, behalf, given that he is a leader in sexuality, have some very high-end organic uh, lubricants, which uh, I haven't talked about in the past, but um, I think is really important because uh, obviously, you know, there's many things that we put into our bodies, and I think it's important that all of those um, are... Uh, at integrity, and I think Foria does a really great job with just using super high-end organic uh, ingredients, so check them out. Thrive Probiotic, um, my go-to probiotic. Um, if you've been listening to the show, you know that I that I love them. Clinically proven, you know, our gut is the center for our immunity. It's the center for our many of our neurotransmitters. It's our second brain, the enteric nervous system. And they have a clinically proven product that I that I stand by. I really uh, enjoy. I do their prebiotic, their probiotic, and their K2 supplement. They're justthrivehealth.com. And if you put in peak, you get 15% off your order. So with that, it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Chris Ryan. Speaking of which, let's uh, let's do it. Let's chat about this uh, civilized to death. So Obviously, are, uh, we, are we rolling? Well, it's technically recording. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we are, we are, we are in process. <laughs> Didn't we see could you e- there. We could, e- we could either start now or we started already. Uh, but either way, um, you know, obviously, Sex at Dawn, massive, massive hit, amazing book. We talked about that actually at a book club not long ago here in Venice. But Civilized to Death is the new book, uh, which I also loved. Thank you. Wasn't, uh, well, 
let, before I go into it, what was your impetus for writing Civilized to Death? Uh, well, the short answer is a publisher paid me to. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason. If we're going to be honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, on a sort of a deeper level, there was, I don't know if you remember in Sex at Dawn, there's a section in the middle where we said, you know, we sort of talked about sexuality uh, from an anthropological and primatological perspective for a while, for five or six chapters. And then there's a section in the middle where before we start applying all this to the modern world and, uh, you know, a therapeutic perspective or relationships and all that kind of stuff, we wanted to just review briefly other aspects of hunter-gatherer life because it felt weird to just talk about this one part of hunter-gatherer existence without talking about you know relationships how children are raised how political power is is handled how um, uh, resources are distributed how conflict is resolved all these sorts of other parts of life that are integrated with sexuality and um, sort of essential to get a global understanding of how our ancestors lived, right? Um, so we just did a brief summary there, and then we went back to sex and you know, all the juicy stuff. Yeah. And uh, I was surprised, really, because I felt sort of an obligation to do that, but I felt like the reader might be a little like resistant to it, because nah, you know, I want the sex. I bought the book about sex, I want the right. sex. Um, but a lot of people reached out to us afterwards and said, man, I would have loved to know more about that non-sexual stuff. Like, that was really interesting, like how, how our ancestors raised children and how different that was and all these different things, what kind of food they ate, you know. And uh, people wanted more of that. And so honestly, you know, I had already done so much research that this was kind of an easy follow-up in a way because I already knew all that. I already had all that material, and uh, there was an appetite for it. It grew out of. It grew from that. It, the book changed as I wrote it, um, but that's that's really how it started. That was the impetus. I think so. What's interesting is I'm seeing more, and some some of which you actually cite in your, in the book, um, more on this. This almost clarion call to ancestral living would be the best way to describe yeah. it, right? I mean, like, you know, we have this epidemic of diabetes, for example, right. in the Western world, you know, half the U.S. population is pre-diabetic, Chinese population, a lot of it having to do with their diet and lifestyle. And so we're getting this sort of canary in the coal mine, if you will, about like, hey, the way we're living in the modern age uh, isn't necessarily uh, idyllic for ourselves or the planet. Yeah. And you, I think... In a, in, a, in a very kind of systematic way, break down, you know, a lot of the the habits and, and dispel a lot of the myths, I think, that people have around sort of what ancestral living, hunter-gatherer living might have been. The challenge I have, of course, is is then what do you do with that, right? Like, if you, if you do see is like, you know, and you describe, for example, like, you know, like the genocide of a lot of the indigenous cultures that in some ways had a more, I would describe, harmonious... Uh, I'll put my own perspective on, uh, enlightened way of living as it related to their relationship to each other and the planet, not to overly romanticize it. I'm sure there was conflicts and such, but, you know, how do you apply that knowing what you know and living where, where we do now, right? Where we're yeah. on in this sort of impending, because you, you know, you also say, you know, there's always like, you know, people, people say, well, and here's the hopeful bit, you know, but like, that, that's one of the genuine challenges that I'm contending with is like, what do you do with that knowledge? 
Well, you know, you and I were speaking before the podcast proper began, right? We're talking about traveling in a van, yeah. right? Uh, there's a nomadism there. There's a, we're talking about how satisfying it is to sit around a fire at yeah. night and jump in the river in the morning and look at the stars. And you're talking about going on this hiking trip and, you know, being close to nature. Well, these are all intentional things that we've chosen to do in our lives to incorporate this wisdom, yeah. this ancestral wisdom, which, you know, sounds so noble, but there's a reason these things feel good, mm -hmm. right? There's a reason our body tells us, our soul, our spirit, whatever you want to call these voices that speak to us, they generally are, are guiding us toward the things that work for us, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, there's a reason that uh, zoo designers study the natural environment of the animal so that they can replicate it in the zoo. Mm -hmm. One of the things I say in the book is, you know, I talk about how I went to a zoo in Bukatingi, Sumatra yeah. once, and it was just so incredibly sad. These orangutans were in these concrete cages with iron bars, and and it was just horrible. I, I, I'll never forget them just reaching out and looking at me like, kill me, mm -hmm. anything. Get me out of here, right? And then later, when I was still in Sumatra, I went and saw the orangutan rehabilitation center where they were reintroducing orangutans to the jungle, and uh, you could see them up in the trees. And um, and then I didn't go to another zoo for probably 15 years after that. Like, I just know more fucking zoos, you know? Uh, and then uh, when I was working on Sex at Dawn, someone invited me to the San Diego Zoo to um, talk to some people who were working with bonobos there. And I went down. And man, it's like, okay, it's a zoo. It's still a zoo. These animals are still living in captivity. But they've replicated the natural environment of the animal as much as possible. Yeah. So not only the kinds of plants that were around, the kinds of food that they eat in a natural environment, the food is dispersed the way it is. It's not just put on a plate so they fight over it. It's spread out so there's no reason to fight over it. The mixture of male to female, the, the sort of social grouping, all these things are designed with an understanding of where the animal comes from. Mm. So, to answer your question, I think what we do is we, on a social level and on a personal level, we try to incorporate as much of our natural environment as we can into our modern lives. We're not going to go back to a hunter-gatherer life. It's, there are too many of us. The yeah. planet can't handle it. There's not enough resources and so on. But we can certainly... Um, the first step is to understand where we come from, understand what kind of animal we are, and then we can start making changes in our modern lives to replicate um, the environment in which we evolved as much as possible. This could be, you know, everyone talks about uh, don't look at your phone late at night because the blue rays of your phone will fuck up your brain and you won't <laughs> yep. sleep well. You know, that's an I've example. Got the red light on there, yeah. Right, that's what we're talking about. Why red light? Well, because we evolved looking at campfires yes. every night. There was no blue light in our natural environment. So we look to our evolution to tell us what kind of food should we eat, how active should we be, what kind of sexual life is appropriate for us, what kind of community life is appropriate, um, activity levels, all this stuff. We find the past is a roadmap. 
Yeah. Uh, to the kind of lives that uh, work best for us as creatures. Yeah, I love that. You you broke down. I'd love it if you did a, just spoke a little bit to, you know, you broke down a sort of the social formations uh, of the hunter gatherers yeah. in terms of like even hunting parties. Like I love that part in the in the where you we sort of break down that oftentimes even the successful hunter, they'll trade arrows so they don't know who actually was, because if there is someone who's more exceptional, if you will, which we would obviously very much uh, celebrate in modern society, you know, as like, you know, the, the all-star, if you will, they sort of, they make, they they create a system that perpetuates humility so that there's greater equanimity, at least yeah. that was my interpretation. Yeah. And you, it's it's you break down the almost the, the a lot of the structures as it relates to um, hunter gatherers that that enabled that equanimity. Could you share a little bit about more about what your findings were in regards to some of those structures? Yeah, there. That's a very important part of hunter gatherer life because the thing is, we're all we're primates. We're social primates, and all social primates are hierarchical. So when anthropologists describe hunter-gatherers as fiercely egalitarian, which is a universal quality of hunter-gatherers, of true hunter-gatherer groups, they're all egalitarian, and the term used by anthropologists is fiercely egalitarian. In other words, they're not just like, yeah, whatever, man, everybody's cool, everybody's equal. They're like, don't you fucking try to make us unequal. Mm-hmm. They, there's a fierce resistance to anybody trying. So, for example, when um, Daniel Everett was with the Pinaha people in the upper Amazon and he invited some psychologists to come and study these people, they're very interesting, uh, almost pristine hunter-gatherers. Um, they came in and they, they decided to do some cognitive testing. And the testing was, you know, um, sort of, memory skills and um, you know if these two shapes will fit into each other and all that and in order to motivate them to do these tests they were like well whoever does best will get a cigarette or a candy or something and he said to them like it won't work you can't do it that way there can't be winners and losers and they didn't understand because that's the way they motivate kids in the west to do it and adults like a reward of course you give her no no you can't give a reward to one of them they'll split it up someone even talked about how he gave a cigarette to one of them and there were four of the native people there and he broke the cigarette into four pieces and (laughs) each one of them had like a fourth of a cigarette so it's a totally different way of looking at life and these structures that you refer to are important for maintaining the egalitarianism and the sort of and combating the instinctive uh, impulse toward hierarchy. So it's a very interesting thing. There's uh, Christopher Bohm wrote a book called, um, uh, what is it called? Hierarchy in the Forest, I think. And he makes the point that they're not non hierarchical hunter gatherers, they're anti hierarchical. Hmm. They work hard to maintain this absence of hierarchy. Yeah. So why? Well, because the integration, the smooth social integration of a hunter-gatherer group is its greatest strength. As animals, we're not very impressive. Our teeth aren't very sharp. We can't run very fast. We're not very strong. We don't, our claws, you know, we're just not a very impressive animal. So a lone human in the natural world is very vulnerable. But you get 
five or ten of us together, we coordinate mm -hmm. and we can take down a mammoth. We're amazing. So it's very important that we are able to, as a species, that we're able to work together and avoid internal conflict, uh, which was one of the theses of um, Sex at Dawn as well, that sexuality is one of the mechanisms that our ancestors used to keep things functioning smoothly. Um, and these other social institutions you talk about, like for example, trading arrowheads. Um, when a kill is made, the hunter who whose arrow killed the animal is responsible for distributing the meat. Now, that hunter may not have even been on the hunting trip mm -hmm. because he gave an arrow to his buddy and his buddy shot the antelope and then when they bring the antelope back to the village, the guy who made the arrow is responsible. So he's like the hero, right? Hmm. Um, and then there, I, I think it is in this book, I told the story of an anthropologist who was living with um, a group in Africa and toward the end of his visit, he decided he was going to throw a feast to thank the people for their hospitality and all that. And he searched all around the area to find the fattest cow that he could possibly find that he would then, you know, butcher and have this big feast. And he bought this cow and he was really proud. He'd done his research and, you know, saved up his money and all this. And the night of the feast, he was devastated because the men kept talking about what a skinny uh, waste of money this cow was. Like, man, you should have asked us. We could have found much better cows for you. They just kept downplaying the value right. of the cow. And finally, one of the younger guys took him aside. He saw how hurt he was. And he's like, don't worry, this is our way, right? That They don't mean that. They're doing that so that you don't get a big ego. Right. You don't start thinking of yourself as a big man because when someone starts thinking of themselves as bigger than the others, someone dies. Mm -hmm. It never works out well. So it's a very intentional group, a very a group of social mechanisms that very intentionally keep people from considering themselves better than anyone else. Yeah. So for leadership, for example, in politics, it's it's really interesting. Their political approach is the opposite of ours. In a hunter-gatherer group, if you express any interest in being a leader, you are automatically disqualified because you're seen as kind of pathetic, right? You think you're better than us? Fuck you, man. You're not better than us, right? <laughs> Whereas the people who become leaders are the people who other people respect. So you don't become a leader by saying, I'm a leader, I've got the fire in the belly, listen to me, send me your donations. No, you become a leader because a bunch of people go, you know what, this woman, she knows her shit, let's ask her. And that's how she becomes a leader or he becomes a leader. I, I've been thinking we should like, someone should be a candidate for president who doesn't want to be. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? Like if, <laughs> yeah. like if a group of people just got together and said, you know what, man, we want you to be president. You're like, fuck that. I don't want to be president. Like, <laughs> too bad. You're going to be president. And then have like the ads, you know, you're reading the paper on the toilet and yeah. suddenly you're like, you know, you're, you're going to be president. Like, no, leave me alone. Reluctant leadership. Yes. You know, it's the best. Yeah, agree. Because it's, you're not, it's, 
you get a lot less of the uh, the, the the gross ambition and uh, and massive ego, and it's about like who. Exactly. I, I think I thought about that a lot actually because I do you know I've had good fortune. I lived actually in Sri Lanka for two years mm. in a traditional culture where there was no word for privacy and there was no word for possession. Interesting. So when one person fell out of balance, as so I studied an exorcistic, uh, it's a form of Ayurvedic medicine, there are occult practices called Bahutavidya. When someone fell out of balance, it was the role of the entire collective, like literally they would spend weeks building entire palm fraud cities. And they would ritually recreate from sunset to sunrise their shared cosmological worldview, which was kind of like a pre-Buddhistic animism with the evolution of Buddhism. I mean, and then hint because there's a lot of Hindu uh, yeah. princesses that would marry in. So it was this amalgam of all these different worldviews. But basically, they would they would ritually recreate and put that person right in the middle. Huh. And everything was exactly calculated and measured in a way that you know affected you know unconsciously, but you wouldn't even know consciously. And basically, it was about as, as my teacher taught me. It was, you know, it was about bringing them back into balance with the entire community. Because if one person was out of balance, the entire collective was out of balance as they saw it. So very like reading then about you know these these different hunter gatherer societies and these different sort of almost indigenous ways of being. Another context I'll just mention very quickly was being in sweat lodge. You know, I'd see these elders, and what always struck me is you know there'd be the young like. By the way, I'm, you know, this is how we do it and this and that. And almost ubiquitously, I would see the elder and the elder all never told, he would be like, hey, relatives, you know, and it was always a super humble, quiet voice and it would evoke and they would evoke and, and, and guide through story. It was never dictative. This is how you should live your life. Right. This is what you should do. This is right. This is wrong. It was always yeah. like, and if you ever saw that movie, The Straight Story about the guy, which is a true story, who drove his tractor to see his brother. He drove it like a thousand miles from Iowa to Wisconsin. No, no. <laughs> I think I, I heard of it, though. I wanted to watch. Somebody else told you me You would dig it, man. Because yeah. it's basically, it was the same principle, right? This old dude, he's not in any way pretense of like, yo, I'm the man. Right. right. Like, he's, he's flawed like all of us. Right. But, you know, there's this runaway 16-year-old girl, and he, like, makes her a hot dog because, um, you know, she's dealing with some serious reason why she run runs away. And instead of telling her, oh, you should do this, young lady, you know, he just sits by the fire, offers her a hot dog, and sort of ch shares a story, which mm. was the perfect story right. anecdotally for her to right. receive her own wisdom within herself. And yeah. so, anyway, long story short, I just feel like there's such a different paradigm in leadership that... I yearn for, and I think was often, it, it, I still see, for example, in some of the indigenous communities that I have a privilege of, of spending time with, but it's obviously in our modern culture, I think, grossly lacking. So yeah. it, I get, that's kind of the key piece is, well, actually, let me not get ahead of myself. So there's a, you, you sort of talk about in the book how the agricultural revolution shifted the paradigm. Can you, can you distill that down a little bit? Uh, yeah. Well, I think that's such an important thing for people to understand. And, you know, I, I have a lot of, uh, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are coming to this kind of material um, and they're not familiar with the time frames and, and the, the radical transformations. Because, you know, we're, until I started studying prehistory, uh, like everyone else, I thought ancient Rome was ancient, mm. right? I thought that was a long time ago, 2,000 <laughs> yeah. years. Are you kidding me? Right. You know, or Greece, 3,000 years? Oh, my God. That's nothing. Right. That's, that's yesterday, right? 
And so to, to really understand human beings, you need to look at how long have human beings been on earth? Mm. Human beings like us. I'm not talking about, you know, half ape, half right. human, you know, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about anatomically modern human beings with brains as big as ours, maybe bigger, actually, it's the brain size has reduced recently. Um, bodies like ours, people, you could shave them and dress them up and walk them down the street and you wouldn't notice any difference, okay? It's about 300,000 years. 300,000 years. Very probably with language, definitely with fire, um, complex social groups. Yeah. So, 300,000 years, ancient Greece was 3,000 years ago, right? 1% of that. If you look at the advent of agriculture, which the first time people started living in settled communities with leaders, hierarchies, and armies, and farms, and domesticated animals, and all that stuff, that whole sort of suite of uh, changes, you're looking at, at the most, around 10,000 years ago. So it's a tiny fraction of our existence on the planet as a species. And everything before that was immediate return hunter-gatherer groups, meaning they didn't store food. They went out, found food, ate it, and then the next day went somewhere else or you know went back to the same river and fished again or whatever. Uh, so if you want to understand how human beings are, what we are, you really want to look at the hunter-gatherer existence because everything else is just the very recent adaptations that we haven't been able to 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 become comfortable with right mm -hmm. like we're still our digestive system is still trying to figure out how to digest wheat and corn and milk and these things that our ancestors didn't consume until right. very recently so uh what happened what changed at the advent of agriculture basically everything Women went from being on a par with men in terms of uh, status and autonomy and political power to being basically farm animals, uh, being used for reproduction. They were property of men. That happened with agriculture. Before agriculture, that was unheard of. Uh, children became property of men. Uh, men became property of men. Slavery, possessions, the idea that you could own a person or land or an animal, this all entered the human psychological lexicon with agriculture. Before that, there was no ownership. You're a nomadic hunter-gatherer. You don't want to carry stuff around with you, right? There's no point in having your own cooking pot if we can all share one. Why would everyone want to carry a cooking pot every day? It's ridiculous, right? So our, our, our approach to life changed from one of it's ironic because hunter-gatherers have nothing, essentially. They have no personal possessions, but they act as if they're infinitely wealthy. Why? Because they see the world as providing everything they need. So, okay, I'm not carrying anything around, but it's like living in a, I don't know, it's like living in a city where everything's free. It's like, well, I don't need to carry food around. There are shops everywhere. I can just <laughs> yeah. walk in and eat whenever I'm hungry. Right. Right. So that's their approach to life. In fact, I quote an anthropologist saying that hunter-gatherers appear to be poor, but they act as if they have it made. And 
the people in the modern world or post-agricultural world appear to be super wealthy, but they act as if they have nothing, mm -hmm. right? We're all hoarding. So we went from a, uh, a sort of assumption of plentitude to an assumption of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And that assumption of scarcity still keeps the world running, right? The economy has to keep growing. We have to constantly get more. We have to like protect what you have because everyone wants to steal it. And so this approach to life is totally different. So when you wrap your head around how differently our ancestors evolved from how we live now, then you start to see why people are so unhappy. Why, as you mentioned earlier, why we have heart disease, why we have diabetes, why we have all the, you know, different cancers. Many studies of hunter-gatherers have shown diabetes is unknown. Uh, a lot of people say to me, yeah, but we have vaccines now, right? We have modern medicine with all these vaccines against smallpox and cholera and, and tuberculosis. None of those things existed before agriculture. All these diseases, all the biggest killers of humanity uh, entered with agriculture because most of them jumped over from domesticated animals. So tuberculosis came from cattle, uh, smallpox, chicken pox came from birds, uh, ducks and chickens, um, you know, pigs, swine, uh, fevers and uh, flus, influenzas. These diseases either came from domesticated animals or resulted from the fact that we were living in um, stable settlements with high population density. So we're living literally in our own shit. Hunter gatherers, and they, you know, take a shit and move. <laughs> You're not living there. Yeah, you know? Stagnation is often the source of disease where if you're moving, like you see a body of water, you know, it's like bodies of water that move, move a lot yeah. are oftentimes the healthiest. Whereas you yeah. go part of a river that's like stagnant, you sort of Don't see. drink that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So, I, I mean, I so resonate with your, with, with what you're sharing. <clears throat> the, 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 uh, the optimist in me is then always goes to man we are if, if we look at so you especially as you break down the sort of 300,000 years and you think 3,000 years I mean whether you talk about you know the organization of many of our systems as it relates to you know whether it be Greeks or the Romans or even East, like you know Buddhism or Confucius like it's 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 so young in the context of our perception of civilization and then there's and then there's the seemingly expeditious nature of the evolution of time. Yeah. As, as we've sort of reified it anew with the tweets and the, all these different yeah. things. And I think it was Terrence McKenna who had the quote where he said basically like, I think it was something like, the world has changed more since 1994 um, with the, ad, the evolution of technology than it had in the previous thousand years mm. in terms of... Uh, and I did see... Actually, did this workshop, permaculture workshop, with this mathematical cosmologist Brian Swim, who you dig if you don't know him. Mm -hmm. uh, but he he actually had a beep, sort of like it showed exactly what you showed in terms of prehistory and settlements around the world. And it's the most boring movie you've ever watched for like fifteen minutes. And then the last the last ten seconds is like, oh shit! Yeah. You know? Like it's like the beeps of human population just like engulf sort of the the planet. But what he now what he shared, and I'd be very interested. In your perspective on this, because you're, you occur to me as very pragmatic as opposed to idealistic, but I, I could be wrong, is he sort of had this presumption that he's like, well, if you look at where the Earth exists, so he he <coughs> he takes it beyond human prehistory to get into like the whole cosmology, right? Mm -hmm. So he's like, all right, well, 
the Earth, in terms of its the, <coughs> the magnetism that exists, the gravitational pull, is so <coughs> excuse me infinitesimally small that it's allowed the flourishing of life as we know it. Right, the dynamic tension between say the sun and the various planetary bodies. Right. And then you take that and you move that of the solar system within the universe and the universe within the context of multitude of universes. That it's almost miraculous that this narrow band of life exists such that it's allowed the flourishing of life as we know it. And now we're amidst this sort of sixth mass extinction. Um, and the earth will likely recover no matter what. Whether we as humans make it is, I think, the big question. But he sort of breaks down this. He goes microcosmic and he says, you know, there's like a, there's the hare and the rabbit. And the hare and the rabbit have each evolved in a way because of their predator, the predatory relationship, right? The hare has gotten, the, the rabbit's gotten faster as a result of the, excuse me, the hawk and the, and the rabbit. The hawk has, you know, evolved some of its evolution in, in result of needing to predate on the rabbit, and the rabbit has evolved its stealth and what have you as a result of the hawk. So that dynamic tension has actually fostered their, their collective evolution to be what they are. Now, he, my distillation, distillation of that worldview is that, the, and this goes into sort of more of a spiritual worldview, but like that basically consciousness will evolve to provide the antidote uh, to whatever evolves contextually uh, in the context of life on the planet, right? Like humans have evolved self-reflexive consciousness and there is a potentiality that that consciousness will birth the, if you will, antidote to sort of the, the, the devastation of modern life, which is, you know, the, the, you know, we are exploiting the environment. We're not, you know, a lot of, as you, as, you, as you bring out in the book, you know, we've moved away from seeing ourselves as part of nature to, you know, even with other humans, exploiting them as if they were property, right? Which is, which is one of the great tragedies of modern life. His belief is that potentially consciousness will evolve such that we will steer the ship will right the ship before we sink, so to speak, would be the best way to articulate it. What, what's your feeling about that? Do you think, for lack of a better term, we're kind of screwed because of how far down the track we've gone? And, you know, obviously if you read the newspaper or I guess, you know, digitally, you know, look, we have sort of, many people say 10 years, you know, before the catastrophic collapse, which will, you know, necessarily kind of take down a great deal of humanity, at least we'll have ecological apartheid, uh, at the very least, in terms of the wealthy having the means to sort of sort it out, but the poor, you know, refugee crisis, etc., which we're already seeing in certain conflicts. But how do you, and that's, I guess it's a big question, but what's your, what's your worldview? Because I share, I share a, a, a reverence for the way things were. Uh, I'm concerned with the way things are. And, you know, kind of having what occurs to me as a pretty objective worldview, well, maybe not objective, but, but, but definitely distilling it down and looking kind of long game on humanity. What's your, what's your take on where we're at and, and where we go from here? <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to like go on a little diatribe, usually just ask quick questions, but it was the one after reading the book, I was like, mate, are we, are we screwed? Or like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well... You know, I, I don't see a lot of evidence in history for our capacity to right the ship before mm -hmm. it sinks. Mm -hmm. What I see are a lot of sunken ships. Yeah. Uh, I, I refer to um, a book by Ronald Wright called A Brief History of Progress uh, quite a bit in Civilized to Death. And in that book, he 
shows how every civilization that's ever existed has collapsed Mm -hmm. without exception. And they all sort of go through the same phases. It's like there's a life, um, you know, life course that, that civilizations go through and you can see, recognize the different stages in every case. And you, when you read that book and you look around you, you go, Oh, I see where we are, right? We're sort of mid collapse, early to mid collapse right here. The difference is, as he says in that book, he says, every time history repeats itself, the price goes up. Yeah. This will be the first global collapse. Others have been regional. Mm-hmm. Mesopotamia, Easter Island, the Aztecs, the Maya, these have all been um, regional collapses. So the refugees could go elsewhere, the ones who survived. There's not going to be any elsewhere this mm-hmm. time. So... It's, uh, it's an interesting moment to be alive, for sure. Uh, I think that, you know, I end the book by sort of addressing this question and, and get into, uh, I see three possibilities. I think the most likely possibility is that we continue doing what we're doing. Um, and that bifurcates into two paths. One is we somehow get through without global collapse and we continue the process of merging our biology with technology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we become a hybrid machine organism. And as we do that, we continue destroying the planet, but in a way that won't matter to us because we won't need clean air or clean water because we'll have become machines with brains, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and that's already happening, right? I, I've got lots of friends with pacemakers and artificial hips and artificial knees and, you know, the rest of it. And maybe Google will get their Google Glass thing at, right next time. And, you know, we're all staring at our phones and we're all, we're merging with technology already. We're well into that. Yeah. So that's one possibility, sort of the Elon Musk uh, vision. And then we populate other planets and we go out and, you know, we spread our strange techno intelligence into the world. Uh, Another is there's global collapse and it's sort of a Mad Max kind of scenario for a while and maybe people return to something like a hunter-gatherer existence but out of desperation and it's a real dark sort of dark ages again. The third possibility which is the one obviously that I'm most hopeful about but if I were gonna bet I wouldn't put a lot of money on it is that we is that what has happened since the beginning of agriculture is like the hero's journey. I don't know, you've probably read Joseph oh, yeah. Campbell, right? So the hero's journey, he talks about how every society has the same uh, origin story, the same myth of, of how they came to be. And they all involve somebody going out, some young person going out into the world, having experiences and challenges and almost dying and overcoming these various things and learning all these lessons. And then at the end, they come back to where they began and they know the place for the first time, as T.S. Eliot puts it. They bring that knowledge back to where they started. And so they, their life is both familiar and yet informed by these lessons that they learned out there far away. I hope that's what's happened to us. I hope 
something is definitely changing. And as you said earlier, it seems that the direction of so much of modern life is back, right? Medicine, Darwinian medicine, diet, the paleo diet, the exercise, CrossFit, paleo movement, all these things. Um, you know, some people see sex at dawn as like a, a sort of a guide to a paleo sexuality, right? Um, so much of the direction that we need to understand to move forward is informed by the past. So the what, what I'm hoping is that we've gone out on this sort of long journey and we're at the point now where we're turning back toward home, right? with what we've learned and we've learned some amazing things we've learned how to harness energy from the sun and from the waves and from vents in the earth we don't need to destroy anything right maybe most importantly we've learned how to have sex without having babies nobody's going to stop us from having sex uh, although there are some strange things happening in japan where people are not having sex and um yeah, but that's, uh, that's another story. But we've learned birth control, right? We've got IUDs. We've got vasectomies. We know how to do this. Mm. We can intentionally reduce global population for the first time since agriculture. It's been exploding exponentially. We can choose not to do that. We can choose to incentivize people not to have babies, um, maybe by uh, instituting... Um, uh, minimum basic income globally and say you don't need to have kids to be secure in your old age you're good everyone gets a thousand bucks a month forever do whatever you want don't worry about it. we we're capable of that we have those sorts of resources right especially when you consider the fact that if you were instituting minimum basic income around the world most of the wars would sort of disappear because they're fighting over resources mm -hmm. right so I mean, this is all very pie-in-the-sky stuff. No, but I, it's, I like, it's, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I like hearing about it because I think it, this, it is pie-in-the-sky, but it's, I mean, they just exec, uh, executed in, uh, I think it was Northern California, the first sort of experiment with, uh, with the, the universal basic income. And everyone thought, oh, there are people using it for drugs and gambling, this and that. And it's like, no, they pay their bills. Right. They pay their <laughs> bills. They start a small business. Exactly. They, they go back to school. Right. Like, it's, yeah, everywhere that experiment's been done. They did it in Canada, they did it in Sweden, in Holland. They're doing it in Africa right now. People use that money for good purposes. Yeah. Nobody just lies around. And even if you do lie around, it's less money then people are getting through the current system, right? Of the welfare and the AFDC and all these different programs. You eliminate all those programs, you eliminate all that overhead, you just hand people a thousand bucks a month, it ends up being a bargain. Yes. Psychologically, people can't deal with it. But my point is, we've learned, we've learned enough in this journey that we could return home, uh, which, as I said, is not going to be true hunter-gatherer life, but, you know, I just bought land in Colorado. Why? In a little village. Why? Because my friends can move there. Yeah. Uh, it's cheap enough we can all live there. I have friends who love raising chickens. Okay, we're going to get the eggs from them. I have another friend who's an auto mechanic. He's going to fix our shit. You know, I'm going to write books and share the money from the books. Everybody's got a thing to contribute and we can take care of each other. So even if the fucking world collapses and, or half collapses, We'll take care of each other, right? And to me, that is a way of sort of confronting the future 
informed by the past. Mm. Is, if I may distill what I'm hearing from you, is it's sort of like you're moving back towards like the band mentality mm. of like, because I do think that's one of the great, it's both, are, it's, it's, we've been sold this notion of this great, you know, individuality as like, you know, supreme, so to speak. Right. And, you know, there's advantages to that. I'm not going to, you know, there's, I'm, I'm not going to say I haven't reaped some of the benefits of, you know, this individualist worldview. That said, you know, the epidemic of depression and loneliness, which is now becoming, you know, beyond even the physical of what we're talking about, like the psychological, especially in this, the, the young generation, it's yeah. like the number of people that self-identify as alone is over 70%. I mean, it's yeah. striking statistics. And... Interestingly enough, so this is what I'm actually writing my next book on, but Harvard did this longitudinal study, basically, where it's like, you, you probably know the study, but basically where they distilled down, like, the greatest corollary to long-term health and happiness. And it's not, like, all the things that I would have guessed, right? It's the quality of your relationships. Right. right? Being embedded in a community of people who care about you. Exactly. That's more, has a higher um, impact on health than whether you smoke or not, yeah. your weight, how much you exercise, like all these things we're telling people to do yeah. for their health. The most important thing to do is hang out with friends. Yes. I have a buddy who's a fireman up in Portland, a good friend of mine, Justin, and we're talking about the, the horrible things that he's seen, right? Because he gets called to auto accidents and suicides and, you know, he's seen a lot of really terrible things. And he said the worst thing he sees, and it's the thing he sees most often, is loneliness. People, old people call 911 just to have someone to talk to. Wow. He said it's unbelievable. You wouldn't believe how many people in a city are just totally alone. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's it's interesting. I, you know, you asked me earlier why I wrote this book and what was the impetus. And it's, it's weird because like one of the main themes of the book, but one that I don't talk about in interviews very much because it's kind of like so obvious, it's strange to talk about. But we've been sold a bill of goods about what we are, mm -hmm. what kind of animal we are. We've been told since Thomas Hobbes said, you know, life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. This very famous phrase everyone's heard. We've been told that our nature is brutish and nasty and we're violent, horrible, you know, monkeys with a thin veneer of civility over us. And it's only the state that stops us from destroying each other and ourselves. And that's bullshit. Yeah. That's total, it, it's divide and conquer where we're, they're dividing us against ourselves mm -hmm. and each other, right? Where in reality, when you look at the evidence, for example, there's an academic discipline called um, disaster sociology, people who study how humans behave in disasters. Mm -hmm. So this, these are cases where through a war or a flood or an earthquake or whatever, the, the state is gone. Everything collapses. So how do people behave? Raping and pillaging, right? No. What happens is people help each other. People look out for each other, not just their relatives. This isn't a you know Darwinian inclusive fitness kind of genetic thing. Neighbors reach out to each other because our instinct as a deeply social species is take care of people around you and they'll take care of you. Mm -hmm. The problem is in modern life, 
that necessity is removed by these structures. Mm -hmm. So we have insurance companies saying, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Yeah, but where's my neighbor? I don't even know my neighbor's name, right? right? And so all these things become commodified and become sort of commercialized. And when the, when the state falls away, when we're actually in a disaster, we revert to our basic human behavior, mm -hmm. which is compassion, cooperation, that kind of thing. The, I, get a, I have a quote in the book from uh, the guy, I forget his name, but he is basically the, the scholar who started the discipline of disaster sociology. I think he began by studying like how the Germans responded to uh, bombings, carpet bombings, and uh, in World War II, and then after the war, he continued the study and it became this whole discipline. And at the end of his life, he said, what I've learned from having studied this throughout my life is that people who survive disasters look back at those years as the best times of their lives. Mm. Those were the best years. And the disaster is not the problem. The true disaster is normal life. Mm -hmm. So as far as hopefulness goes, it's a strange kind of hopefulness because what I'm feeling is like, even if there's global collapse, yeah, a lot of people are going to suffer. A lot of people are already suffering. But if there's global collapse, quality of life will actually go up for a lot of people. Hmm. We'll be poor. We'll be inconvenienced at the least. But our relationships with each other will be much stronger. And that's what life's about. Fascinating. I, I, I heard that. I remember... In the UK during World War II, they said they yeah. had that premise, right? Basically, people wanted cooperating far more in the concept. You see that after Katrina. It's yeah. actually, I'm, you know, with, yeah, yeah. with Global Citizen, it was actually one of the things. It's like, man, how could you? The outpouring of support for people after a disaster, which are now unfortunately becoming more and more frequent, yeah. is significant. Yeah, as you said, 9-11, like in terms of the degree of humanity. But how does how could that translate in sort of day to day life? Well, it's tough given, like you said, kind of all the structures that exist to yeah. against it, if you will, the commercialization uh, of many aspects of the state. So yeah, if you think, I mean, a metaphor is refrigeration in a strange way, mm. right? Uh, my wife grew up in Mozambique, yeah. and when I think it was when we were writing Sex at Dawn, uh, she told me this expression. Uh, that she always heard when she was a kid in the village, which is the best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's awesome. Now, that pertains to hunter-gatherers because where else are you going to store food? Yeah. Right? There's no... You kill a deer, you bring it back to the village. You know, the sort of classic Darwinian, Darwinian view is like you're going to share that with your wife and your kids. Well, that would get you kicked out of the village. Right. You know, what kind of asshole brings home a deer and just shares it with his <laughs> wife and kids, right? right? What about us, dude? Right. Yeah. You know, so that's that's clearly not how things work in the real world. That's like a, you know, thought experiment that mm. Richard Dawkins and Steven Pinker do. Um, so, but, you know, so that, that concept uh, applies to hunter-gatherers. But when you have refrigeration... Now you can bring the deer home, share it with your wife and kids, put the rest in the fridge and have it later. Mm -hmm. So it changes the whole dynamic and yeah. social system, ostracizes you from the people who don't have any food while your freezer is full of food, changes everything.
So maybe the best thing is all the freezers break. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, because on that, on that notion, I mean, because I'm so interested in this idea of relating, especially relating in the 21st century, um, which I think we need a whole new playbook around just based on, it's a little bit different here, but when I go back home, you know, or like to a quote-unquote networking event. I mean, it's Where like is the home? most painful. Uh, Chicago, for oh, me. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the Midwest, you know, it's like people desperately want to connect with each other, but their 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 manual is, is highly antiquated. Yeah. Uh, and not in a good way antiquated, yeah. you know, in terms of like, oh, Chris, what do you do? You know, <laughs> like, they're like, Oh, and I'm also going to be looking over your shoulder to see who else. Maybe someone more important wants right. by, right? Like, right. it's just like we don't even know how to, like, connect anymore. Yeah. And I think what what's powerful is, obviously, you shared and sort of dispelled a lot of the commonplace notions around relating uh, in the context of sexuality, obviously, with sex with Dawn, sex at Dawn, but also in the context of, you know, Sex, sex with Dawn will be the follow-up. <laughs> exactly. Sex with Dawn will be an interesting, uh, yeah, an interesting part too. Uh, but what what are your what are your what's your sense of some of the tenets of human relating and and you know maybe it's maybe it's a modern take on like how or or maybe it's you know hey let's go back to the paleo form of relating but like based on what you've the deep research that you've done you know you know and you you've obviously talked about it in the context of bonobos sexuality this and that but. As we relate, I, I'm fascinated to hear your perspective on like, what are the ways, given that the quality of our life is based on our relationships, like what, what wisdom have you distilled from your research on how we can relate more effectively? Interesting question. I'm not sure if the research has been as informative as my experience, mm. my, my own personal life experience. You know, I... I was traveling. I, I backpacked around the world from 1983 uh, when I got out of college uh, until uh, sometime in the, I don't know, I, I'm still backpacking in some ways, but with a van now. <laughs> exactly. Now it's a van. Now it's a van. It's a backpack on wheels. Yes. Um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time just traveling around the world, and I was in Spain. Uh, I got robbed in Barcelona, and... Through a series of coincidences, I ended up living there for about 20 years. A few like different. I left and went back, and left and went back. Um, I learned a lot living in Spain, and one of the things was I, I wanted to be in Spain. I just felt at home there, and I, it took me a while to figure out why. Yeah. I didn't speak the language uh, when I started living there. I just felt walking down the street. I just felt like these are my people. Mm -hmm. I, I get it. And I, I came to realize that probably if I had to sum it up, it's that Spanish people are not ashamed of pleasure. Mm. So they're not ashamed of sex. They're not ashamed of sitting in the sun. They're not ashamed of having a drink with lunch. They're not ashamed that lunch takes two hours. They're not ashamed uh, at enjoying their lives. And you come to America and pleasure is shameful mm. and so I mean I remember when Starbucks was expanding into Europe and my Spanish friends were totally confused and they were like wait so they sell coffee in paper cups and people walk down the street with coffee why would you want to walk down the street with coffee <laughs> you want to have a coffee you go to a cafe you sit down you read the paper you have a coffee yeah where, what's your hurry? Yeah. You know, what, what are you doing? Like in Spain, like, there are no, 
there are no cup holders in cars. Why would you want a cup holder in a car? You're driving. Yeah. Drive. You get a ham sandwich. It's a nice baguette, some olive oil, some salt and pepper, and ham. No mayo, no mustard, no lettuce, no tomato, no ham. You want to taste ham? Eat ham. The food is simple. It's good. You taste it, right? You come here, everything's, oh, it's the biggest, it's the biggest, it's the most, all you can eat. Like, there are no all you can eat restaurants in Spain. Like, what, why would you, what do you mean all you can eat? What's wrong with you? Are you starving? I mean, the whole approach to life is different. Mm-hmm. And, and relationships. You go into a bar in Spain, uh, there are old people, there are kids, there are dogs, you know, there are hipsters, there are old dudes playing dominoes. It's all mixed together. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's hanging out. So I guess, you know, this relates to your question in the sense that what I've learned is that we need each other yeah. and, and it's natural. And this separation into, you know, um, I only want to go to a party where I'm likely to meet somebody who's going to help my career and that whole like, you know, live to work approach to life. It's a fucking fraud. It's yeah. a scam. You know, there's a section in the book uh, where I sort of jokingly introduce a new psychological concept uh, called rich asshole syndrome. <laughs> R-A-S for short. And what I'm trying to convey in that is that, see, I used to think that uh, economics was like a poker game at a friend's house. So you and I go to you know, Akaja's place and we play poker with a couple other guys. You walk away with more money, that means somebody else is walking away with less money. You won, I lost, okay, whatever, right? But then I realized that I, you know, I have some friends who are very wealthy and uh, they're not particularly happy. Mm. And so I started looking into the research and the research is uh, overwhelming that above a certain amount of money, Per year, there's no correlation with happiness, with increased happiness. Uh, and so I started thinking, wait a minute, this isn't a poker game at a friend's house where the net, you know, it's a, a, a sort of a zero sum game. This is a poker game at a casino where we all lose. So who's winning? The house is winning. What's the house? The house is this institution or this sort of super organism or something. But the research is very clear that millionaires aren't happier than people who make a hundred grand a year. And it makes sense if you think about it. Like, I like red wine, right? A $15 bottle of Rioja rings my bell. That's that's all I need. It's good. It's great. Now, I know there are bottles of wine that cost $1,500. Are they a hundred times better than this bottle of wine that I really like? Is it possible for a bottle of wine to be a hundred times? No, it's not. It's not. I mean, maybe I don't have the most sophisticated palate, but it is not possible that something tastes, you would give me a hundred times the pleasure that that bottle of wine gives me. So there's a, uh, the, the rule of diminishing returns. It kicks in really quickly, mm-hmm. right? There's this, another expression from Africa, a meal is as good as a feast. Mm. And in fact, a feast is kind of a pain in the ass because you have to worry which spoon you're using. And, you know, <laughs> if you're, like, the cocktail banter is right and you're wearing the right... Sh- like, no, like, all we really need is good, simple, 
nutritious food, right? Yeah. That's that's what satisfies. So I don't know. I'm ranting here, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that in the in the RAS chapter, what I what I was arguing is, I always thought like. A lot of people become rich because they're willing to do things that are unethical or screw other people over in order to get rich, and that makes them assholes. Or they were assholes already, and then they happen to get rich because of that. Hmm. But my experience in life has told me, no. What happens is some people get rich through luck, through uh, industry, through working hard, whatever it is, through focus. Uh, and they become assholes because it's painful to be rich. It's painful to have more than the people around you. Be because that's inhuman. That's literally inhuman. Our ancestors, none of them had more than the others. So having significantly more than people around you is psychologically difficult. And so what happens is we develop scar tissue to allow ourselves to function and ignore the suffering that we could, in theory, alleviate, but in reality we can't and don't because it's overwhelming. And I'm not blaming anyone. I, I write about the first time I went to India and was sitting in a restaurant, you know, street level, outside, table outside, and these little kids came and they stood next to my table and stared at my food. And I was annoyed. And I remember like going through this process because I'd lived in Manhattan before that and I developed all these defense mechanisms, you know, oh, you're a drunk, you're a junkie, it's, you know, your, your mistakes and their social services for you and, you know, whatever, you're just going to use the money to buy booze or blah, 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 whatever. You know, I, the, I made those excuses so I could function in Manhattan in the 80s. I got to India and I, what, what excuses am I going to use now? How did these kids deserve this? What mistakes did this seven-year-old make that he's an orphan living on the streets of New Delhi right now and starving? And he's not pretending he's starving. I can see he's starving, right? So what do I do? Do I, I've got enough money to like build a school. You know, what I spent on my flight here I could use to you know buy this kid out of but how do I do it I don't know how to do it and do I really want to do it because I actually want to travel for another four months and I was rich and I became an asshole because there's nothing else to do there's no way around it you know um, so I guess what, what I'm trying to say is as far as relating with each other goes I think that uh, I hope that some rich people read this book and and stop feeling guilty and realize a that it's not their fault that they feel these things and b that being wealthy isn't really going to make them any happier and maybe some young people will read it and and give up on that game and realize that what makes them happy what's going to work what'll make you happy is having friends who actually love you who don't who aren't looking to use you to get you to invest in their company or you know let me borrow your yacht or something that the actual human connection is the only thing that will really make anybody happier and make life better. All the rest is a scam. It's a scam to suck your attention, suck your energy, suck your life away, chasing something that you'll never catch. Chris Ryan.
Civilized to Death. Where can people find you uh, on the interwebs and or I mean the book, Amazon, etc. But where can they where can they find you? And in, in, I mean you have an amazing podcast, etc. Yeah, the podcast is called. Thank you for that. By the way, podcast is called Tangentially Speaking. Yep. Um, but they can find everything on my website, thatchrisryan.com. Amazing. I hope that this is not our last conversation. No. I actually do want to delve. I would love to actually have a Sex at Dawn conversation with you at some point because uh, you guys got to pick up that book and Civilize to Death. Um, now let's get you on my podcast as well, man. I'm in, dude. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah, I love, I love this conversation. I appreciate you, man. Good. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I appreciate you too. Yeah. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Chris Ryan as much as I did. Um, I think he brings up some extraordinarily salient points as it relates to our ancestral history. And while we can't go back to the past, I think we can apply certain of the tenets and principles um, that were common in our ancestral sort of hunter-gatherer tribal societies in a way that we can use them as an impetus for living today as we forge obviously much larger collectives. And so it was a really great read for me. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go ahead and leave us a rating review on iTunes. It means the world to me. Uh, please go ahead and share the episode with anyone you think might find it compelling. And uh, you're always welcome to tag me at Michael Trainer and share your thoughts. Um, always love hearing from you. And um, yeah, with that, I just want to say thank you guys so much for listening. It means the world to me. And please go out there and live your inspired life.